Friends, we, we just finished up what I think it has been the most significant ministry of the man cave since we first started. It has been a fascinating year at many different levels. And uh, those men who were there last, last Monday night for our last night, our, our finale, if you will, know that we had a great night. We had over 50 men show up. And Wendell pointed out to me, he said, you know, that wasn't 50 people with men with their wives or men with their children. That was 50 men who showed up. And that was exciting to see. It broke all attendance records that we have ever had, and uh, it turned out to be just an absolutely great night. We, the the uh, scissors lift ski ball, guys just had a hoot with that. It was, just, it was just fun. Derek Converse put on a full turkey dinner. That was fun. Uh, Chuck Todhill took us into the Word, finished really strong. In fact, there were so many of us, we couldn't meet in this room for our time in the Word because we spent the night outdoors, and when we had to come in for the Word, we had to go into the entryway because that was the only place where we could get that many chairs and guys uh, fitted into the room. So Chuck did a great job with that series, and so we were thankful for that. But I got to tell you one thing about, about the night, okay? Because it goes back about 15 months. For the 20th, year of, 20th anniversary of Awana, Paul Buck threw out the idea of a open, uh, an open Awana Derby. And when he announced it to parents at the previous Awana Derby that a year from now we will have, that was in 2015, we will have an open class, meaning dads can bring stuff in, I immediately turned to Derek and said, Derek, I'm going to beat you in that. So... For a year, I kept bugging him I was going to beat him, I was going to beat him. You need to understand that, okay? And I would not show him my car. He kept wanting to see my car. He wanted to see my car. Well, the rules to it were, very simply, five ounces or under, original wheels and axles, and after that, pretty much anything goes, all right? And I just assumed that all these other dads are going where I'm going with it, and that is somehow you have to power your vehicle to make it a little bit faster, so an hour before the race actually happens, I finally let Derek see my car because I knew if I let him, and there was another guy working really hard in this, it was Eric Vedbroughton, if I let these guys see my car, they, they will clean my clock. They'll come up with something. And so I'm not letting them see it right before the race. So I kept it hidden. And as it turns out, I, I, much to my surprise, I was the only one with a powered car. And when they saw it, both of them, first thing they said was, you cheated. I said, well, hang on a second. Let's review the rules. Five ounces or under, original wheels and axles, and after that, pretty much anything goes. Yeah, but you cheated. And Derek kept giving me this, well, you didn't stay within the spirit of Awana, which is why you've seen us advertising, okay, we had the spirit of Awana open class derby, meaning cars were not powered, and then we had the you cheated uh, derby in which cars could be powered. And I had showed my guys my, the guys my car, I said, this is the car that I'll be bringing, I'll be racing this, see if you can beat it. And they're like, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, so we went ahead, we had the derby. Derby was incredible. We had it set up outside here. It was amazing because the guys who built cars for this, when I am not exaggerating when I say the cars were finishing this close to each other. We had to rerun some heats because we're like, what just happened there? Who won? It was amazing. In fact, I think probably what was happening is the track made more of a distinction in terms of who won than the cars themselves. They were that close. It was just fun to watch. Well, when all the heats got done and we sorted through it, Derek's car won in the Spirit of Awana class that wasn't powered. Okay, and now I didn't see anything else out there that was a, was a powered car. So it's like, 
Okay, we ran that, determined Derek, Derek is the winner. And it's like, that was cool, all right? That was a lot of fun. I said, but guys, you probably want to at least see this car run. So I'm getting ready just to set my car up because a lot of guys, uh, they'd, they'd seen the car, they hadn't seen it run. And just as I'm getting ready to set it up at this end of the track, the other end of the track, Derek yells out, hey, let's review the rules again. And I said, oh, I'm like, oh, great. We've got to go through this again? Okay, all right. Under five ounces or under, original axles and wheels, and after that, pretty much anything goes. Okay, he comes running up, all right? And unbeknownst to me, uh, he really does have a means of entering this second, you know, this, uh, this you cheated class. And so he brings out the original car that he's already used, and he says, we already know this is five ounces. So he puts it on the track, and I don't know exactly how he did it, but he pulls out some, some monofilament fishing line out of his pocket. He attaches it to his car. And then when it's time to run the race, he literally is running and pulling his car down the track. It was great, and he won. And I had to take my first place trophy and hand it to him because it was like pretty much after, you know, he said, original wheels, real jackals, five ounces, anything goes. I like, he did it. He came up with an idea. It was absolutely hysterical. Now, my point is this. Derek had the same goal in each race, and that was the coming first. But he accomplished it in two different ways. As we come to the scriptures this morning, we're going to look at two passages in the book of Mark where Jesus has a singular goal. It is to bring eyesight Back to two men who are blind, two different men. But what we will find is he does it in two different ways. So he has the same goal to restore their sight, but he has two different means of accomplishing that goal. And I believe, as we look at it, what I'm hoping we will grasp, each one by Mark is set forth for us to uh, teach us a particular something, some particular content that he wants us to grasp. And so what I'd like to do, and this is structurally going to be a little bit, you know, a little complex, and I know that. I don't know how to do it other than say, let's dig in, and hopefully you'll stay, you'll stay with me, okay? Mark chapter 8. I want to pick it up in verse 22. Mark chapter 8. We're just going to read, first of all, the two accounts. Then he came to Bethsaida, and they brought a blind man to him and begged him to touch him. So he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the town. And when he had spit on his eyes and put his hands on him, he asked him if he saw anything. And he looked up and said, I see men like trees walking. Then he put his hands on his eyes again and made him look up. And he was restored and saw everyone clearly. Then he sent him away to his house saying, Neither go into the town nor tell anyone in the town. And that's the healing outside of Bethsaida. If you move over to Mark chapter 10 and we pick it up in verse 46, we read this account. Now they came to Jericho. As he went out of Jericho with his disciples and and a great multitude, blind Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, sat by the road begging. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. 
Then many warned him to be quiet, but he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. So Jesus stood still and commanded him to be called. Then they called the blind man, saying to him, Be of good cheer, rise, he's calling you. And throwing aside his garment, he rose and came to Jesus. So Jesus answered and said to him, What do you want me to do for you? The blind man said to him, Rabboni, that I may receive my sight. Then Jesus said to him, Go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus on the road. Now, friends, I absolutely believe these miracles are more than just being able to validate for us that Jesus is able to restore sightedness to people who are blind. We have other places where Mark seems to just be emphasizing that. That has already been established in his gospel by the time we get to this point. I believe he's trying to teach us, and I want to try and develop that. He's, he's teaching us something about, one, the disciples, and that that something will also apply to us. But I want to draw the first conclusion based upon the fact that he had the same goal in mind And whether we're talking about the blind men, whether we're talking about the disciples, or whether we're talking about ourselves here in 2016, here's our first thought. God is healing each of us completely. The sight was restored fully to each of these individuals. And that is God's desire That is something that we have put in front of ourselves probably hundreds of times now through our years together. That that is God's intention for his children, that he is bringing complete healing to each of our lives. Romans 8, 29, Whom he did foreknow them, he did predestine to be conformed to the image of his Son, We're to be made like Christ. That's God's goal. God has predestined that we each, those of us who are his children by faith in Jesus Christ, will each be conformed to the image of his Son, that he, that is Christ, might be the firstborn among many brethren, that following Christ, there's going to be many, us, restored into Christ's likeness. That image lost, that image that was marred, that image in the garden that when Adam decided to go his own way and say, I think I'll live in rebellion to what God has said, and sin came in and darkness came in, and the image of God was marred, that image is going to be restored. Because remember what God said, let us make man in our image, right? Back there in Genesis. It's going to be restored by restoring us into the image of Jesus Christ, who from our study a year ago we know also is the second person of the Trinity. And to be made like Christ is to have the image of God restored in us. Romans 8.29. Philippians 1.6. Having this very confidence that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ. That God is going to finish his work. 1 John 3, 2. We do not now, now know what we will be. It is not yet revealed what we will be. But we know that when we see him, or that when he arrives, we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. We shall be like him. 
Three different places in the scriptures which allude to the fact that we are going to be restored into the image of God as we are restored into Christ's likeness. God is, just as, just as Jesus did with each of these guys being healed, and he healed them completely, God is healing each of us completely. But as we look at these particular healings, we very quickly notice obvious differences. And you saw them just by reading through at one time. Obvious differences in how Jesus healed each man. Now, their need was the same, was it not? Both of them were blind. Both of them needed sight. But their context differed. The town that they were in, whether they were in, in a crowd or pulled out of a crowd, even how they came to Jesus. The first guy was brought to Jesus. The next guy, Jesus, he heard Jesus was in the air, and he just started calling out. He just started crying out because Jesus was present. The process differed. Did you notice? The first guy he touched, not once, he touched him twice. The second guy he didn't touch at all. He said, what do you want me to do for you, that I'd receive my sight? He says, go your way. Your faith has made you whole. Boom, immediately he was made whole. Never touched him at all. And the after effect for each one was different. The first guy, he said, now listen, I want you to head home. And don't head home by going back into town and then out to your home, because apparently he didn't live right there in Bethsaida. He said, don't go there. I want you to go around the town and go straight home. And don't go talk to anybody in the town. And he sent him off. He sent him home. When it came to the second guy, Bartimaeus, he actually followed Jesus and stayed with the crowd that was moving with him. All sorts of things we can look at and say there was an incredible difference that is very easy, very easy to see right on the surface. And so that leads us to a second point we ought to consider in, in looking at these two miracles and that is not only that God is healing each of us completely, but God is healing each of us uniquely. That God is doing a work in each of our lives that pertains directly to our life, to our journey, to our place at this time in the world's history, at this place geographically. In the account in Mark chapter 8, the man healed by Bethsaida. You know, it's the only recorded, I'm not saying it's the only time it happened, notice what I say, it's the only recorded progressive miracle. How unique is that? There's no other miracle that Jesus did that seemed to take two steps in terms of healing somebody. He, he spit, put you know, his spit on his eyes, he touched him. What do you see? I see men like trees walking, touched him again, and now he could see clearly. That's the only miracle that works that way. Also, for this particular miracle, Mark is the only one who records this miracle. I think that clues us into something Mark is trying to teach us by it. And what comes with that is he's teaching us something beyond Jesus' healing abilities. And here's where I hope you'll stay with me for just a few minutes. Because ultimately, the point of this miracle is not about Jesus' ability to heal the blind guy. The point of this miracle is he's teaching us about the disciples' needs. And that takes us back into the context. Because that miracle follows directly upon, Mark records it for us, directly upon something else that had happened. <clears throat> we have already looked at, in our study on Mark, we've already looked at that there were two times when Jesus fed, once 5,000, the second time he fed 4,000 people. And after each event, there were all these scraps of food that were taken up. Now, just recently, he had fed the 4,000 when we're in chapter 
8. And then right after that, the Pharisees came and they said, we would ask a sign from heaven for you. And he sighs and he's like, you're not going to get a sign from heaven. Just fed 4,000 people with this little bit of food. And you want a sign from heaven how I'm doing this? Okay, you're questioning my abilities. You're questioning me. I just stuff is being revealed to you explosively in front of you, and you're questioning. He decides, said, you're not going to get that request. So now he takes his disciples off, and they're in Mark. They're constantly crossing the lake, and uh, they had forgotten to take bread. And we read in verse 14, the disciples had forgotten to take bread, and they did not have more than one loaf with them in the boat. Then he charged them, saying, Take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. He's he's contemplating these things and what they've just been asked, and he's cautioning them about the darkness that the Pharisees and Herod are living in. And, And he cautions them against that. And leaven, used in Scripture for a metaphor for sin, for rebellion, for darkness. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, It is because we have no bread. But Jesus, being aware of it, said to them, Why do you reason because you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive nor understand? Is your heart still hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000? How many baskets full of fragments did you take up? They said to him, Twelve. Also, when I broke the seven for the 4,000, how many large baskets full of fragments did you take up? And they said, seven. So he said to them, how is it you do not understand? You see, Mark is teaching about the disciples' disciples' needs. They have learned some things. They have seen some things. But they're still like the blind guy who's been touched by Jesus. But what does he see? He sees men like trees walking. There's something that has been restored, but there's something more that yet needs to happen. This is who the disciples are. And this is why he asks the question in verse 18, having eyes, do you not see? You don't get it yet? Indicating they don't fully understand what was going on Around them. Now, if you read the account in Matthew, you'll find out they did get it eventually. But Mark's not including that. Mark is revealing something else to us, and he's teaching us about the need of the disciples that they had only gained so much, un- so much understanding by this point, and there was still more that needed to be done. Well, when we move back, if you will, now to Mark chapter 10, and we look at where. Uh, Bartimaeus, the one who is actually identified by name for us, we find that his situation was entirely different. This guy had to fight the crowd, didn't he? Perhaps it seemed like the crowd was just dismissing him as just a beggar. We've seen him out there for years, and, you know, people don't give a lot of respect to beggars. They're not, it's not like they're uplifted in, in the culture and going, oh, yeah, we really appreciate a guy who just sits around and lives off of other people. Probably not worth bothering somebody like this miracle-working teacher that is in our midst. He doesn't have time for a beggar like Bartimaeus. So they're trying to shut him up, but Bartimaeus would not stop. And the more they shut him up, the louder he yelled, Son of David, have mercy on me. 
Well, this particular miracle also is designed to teach us something beyond Jesus' healing abilities. And we get it again from the context. This is why, friends, it's important when we study our Bibles. Pay attention to context. Because if you don't understand what's happening in its context, there's a pretty good chance if you just rip something out, you're going to miss some things that God is trying to make known to us. And if we were to go back to the account in Mark chapter 10, we back up just a little bit. Mark chapter 10. I'm going to pick it up in verse 35. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Verse 36, he said, and he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, grant us that we may sit one on your right hand and the other on your left in your glory. Well, that set off a firestorm. First, he explains to them, it's not even to them, it's not even his to be able to do that. But then the other ten hear about their request. Now, they're all disgusted. Mark is very clear. They're all, they were greatly displeased, it says, with James and John. And Jesus has got to call his guys together and say, guys, let's talk for a little bit here, all right? There's something you need to understand. Because right now, you guys are all worried about who's going to be greater in the kingdom. Who's going to be in my right hand? Who's going to be in my left hand? Who has that place of honor, that place of authority, that place of distinction? And you guys are fighting over that. Let me tell you guys, here's how the kingdom of God works. You want to be great? Become a servant. Don't sit there trying to gain positions of honor. Don't sit there trying to gain positions of respect for yourself, trying to, trying to jump in on that. Now, here's what I think is intriguing, friends, and why, again, context matters. When James and John came to him, they said, we have a question for you. In verse 36, Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you. When we hear about blind Bartimaeus, and he's calling out to Christ, in verse 51, we read this So Jesus answered and said to him, Now that he is in his presence, what do you want me to do for you? The exact same request or, or question that he put to James and John. We immediately follow, and this thing he puts the Bartimaeus, the blind man, ask, he puts the same question to him. The only difference, if you go back in the original language, the only difference is there's two guys asking him the first time, so it has to do with being plural. What do you two, what do you guys want me to do for you guys? But other than that, same words, same vocabulary, same question, which reveals to us there's a point here in this second healing also that relates to the disciples. See, he requested the disciples, he, he rejected the disciples' request. He honored the beggar's request. It's teaching us they had a lot to learn about what being a disciple was going to involve. See, the sons of Zebedee, James and John, they came with a deserving spirit. 
We deserve this. We're walking with this guy. We've been here with him from the beginning. We intend to continue on being with him. And maybe if we work on a first-come, first-served basis, if we're the first ones that have the, you know, the wisdom to say, hey, when you come into your kingdom, can we have the, the left and right-hand seats? Maybe we just show just a little bit more that we deserve that seating. That stirred up the deserving spirit in the other guys. Who do you think you are? Why should you deserve that? We've been here from the beginning, too. We're committed to him, too. Where do you get off with such a request? But friends, do we not understand that the deserving spirit is the absolute antithesis to Christ-likeness? Is it not? Christ came to be a servant, Philippians chapter 2. Christ gave up everything he deserved, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God or a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself and took upon himself the form of a servant. The disciples had a lot to learn. And Christ rejected them and called them out on their request. said, you guys don't get it yet. But Bartimaeus, who asked the same question, Bartimaeus, he honors his request. Why? Because Bartimaeus came in desperation. Bartimaeus came knowing that Jesus is his only help. We're not told how many years Bartimaeus was blind, whether it was, you know, for the last five, all his life. We don't know. We just we don't know that. But here's the deal. Bartimaeus knew. He'd heard about this guy by the name of Jesus. He'd heard the stories that there was a, there was a teacher who could heal And when he heard Jesus was in proximity of his voice, he knew, I don't have another hope. There is nowhere else I can turn. None of these people, they may drop a few coins into into my clothing, which is probably what he left there because he would be catching it in his clothing. And rather than try and run to Jesus with that, he just left it there. He's so excited. He's like, I'm not going to mess with this now. Jesus has called me. I'm going into his presence. And he said, any of these people, all they can do do is drop a few coins. But at the end of the day, I'm still a sightless beggar. And Jesus alone is the one who can help me. And in desperation, he cries out. And when they try and shut him up as some, you know, not that valuable beggar in desperation, he just cries louder. See, that's what desperation does to us, friends. Desperation puts us in the place. If we think that's the answer to what I need, I'm going and you cannot stop me. Because I'm heading for it. Sometimes we even grab for self-destructive things, thinking in desperation they're going to help us. But desperation puts us in that place. So what's the life relevance of these two miracles as we sit here in 2016? I'd like to just, if you're open to it, I'd like to just throw out a few thoughts to leave us with for us to consider. Maybe play over in our minds in the weeks ahead to let the Spirit of God take His Word, shape us into Christ-likeness. And those two thoughts I see as falling into two categories. One on personally and then relationally. Personally, Christ alone can heal us, friends. Christ alone can heal us. We have nowhere else to turn. Have we acknowledged this? Have we humbled ourselves to the point we say, Lord Jesus, I, I, I got no other hope? See, we maybe have some who, like the ones who brought the first guy, they brought him into the presence of Jesus. Maybe we have people in our family. Maybe we have friends who have been trying to get us to come into the presence of Jesus 
so that he could do this work in our lives. Or maybe we're at a place where we're, we're just desperate now. I've tried everything else, and I've found nobody around me has any answers. And maybe we're at a place of desperation. We say, I- I'm getting it now. Jesus Christ is my only hope, and I'm calling out to him. But have we done that? Have we humbled ourselves and recognized that Christ alone can heal us? You see, it's easy to know our need when we're blind. These two guys had no problem knowing their need being physically blind. But we can fool ourselves when we're spiritually blind. Number one, Christ alone can heal us. Number two, he will heal us completely if we come to him. Now, are any of us there yet? (laughs) I'm not. Guarantee I'm not. So that raises the question, where do I need further work? Where do I need Jesus to touch me yet again? And to continue his work of healing. This is why, friends, so often in in bringing a message, I'll just be honest with you, okay? I I don't know how it applies to each of us individually. I don't know. Because I don't know where everyone is at. But I do know none of us are complete in Jesus Christ yet. So for whatever touching and healing he has done to us thus far, every one of us, when we gather here, me included, is that clear? Every one of us needs him to go, there's more work to be done, and put his hand on us yet again and move us closer towards Christ-likeness. I just don't know what it is in each person, but I do know it's necessary, and I do know it's God's desire that he will heal us if we approach him recognizing we're desperate rather than deserving. And third, he'll heal us uniquely. We're all on our own unique journey here, friends. That's the truth. Your history is not my history. So he will take us where we're at and he will heal us uniquely, which leads us to the second area. That was all personally. Leads us to the second area and it is simply relationally. I think there's something relationally we need to grasp from from these two miracles and seeing them in their contexts. First one is relationally. Other people are blurry. As we look at them, all we see, what we see is blurry. Do we really know How God is at work in someone else's life? Do we know that? Do I know that? 1 Corinthians would tell us we don't. We might ask the question at this point, as we consider our life and we want to compare our life to somebody else's life, of these two guys, which one got the right healing? Of these two blind guys, which guy got the real healing? Which one got the Bible healing? Which one got the the God-honoring healing? Which one got the real healing? I don't know, somehow I think they both did. But they weren't precisely the same. I'm thinking of considering this for a new life verse. Mark 8, 24. Certainly it's a verse worth my remembering. I see men like trees walking. Most of us don't think of that as a life verse. But at least in a relational aspect, I want to try and remember this. I see men like trees walking. At best, as much as I love you and I care about you, you're a blur to me. Because you know what? I really don't know the woundings God is seeking to heal you from. I don't know what's going on internally with you that God is ready to work with. 
And God is at work on, and he's working in you and through you, but I can't say what that is. You're a blur to me at that point. Not that I don't see you, not that I don't know God is doing something, but who am I to say this is exactly what God is doing with you? So I see men like trees walking relationally. I want to be very careful about conclusions I reach about my brothers or my sisters in Christ. And secondly, we can be blurry to our own selves. We can see our own selves with a skewed vision because the disciples thought they were deserving. The disciples thought, we're getting it right. We're following this guy. You know, we're on the inside track. We deserve to, when it comes to being in heaven, we deserve to sit on his right and left hand. He says, that's not for even him to give. God the Father will discern who sits in those places of honor. And when I realized that, that their pride was poked at that time, and I realized how quickly you poke me, I realized how quickly my pride flares up, how quickly I become defensive, how quickly I want to fight back, how quickly I want to point out where you're wrong. I think of Bartimaeus, and my need is as his. And I want to learn to remember relationally to cry out, Son of David, have mercy on me. When I sit in judgment on my brother, when I respond vindictively towards my brother or sister or my wife or my child, when my pride gets out of hand, son of David, have mercy on me because I'm just driven back to the cross every time. It's my only hope for getting in this, get this healing done properly. Is what God is doing in my life because if you just leave me here, Lord, guess what? My pride is even going to get more out of control. And I don't need that. So relationally, relationally, I'd like us to consider memorizing these two parts of these verses. Just parts of verses. So that when we're in relationship with each other and there's the possibility of things going askew, we remember number one, I see men like trees walking. I'm not really clear on what's going on with this person. So I better be cautious in the conclusions I reach about them. That's number one. And number two, son of David, have mercy on me. When I begin to get askew in my relationship with my brother or my sister. We finished the man cave strong. I, I was in amazement as we were out here and 50-plus men were being taught the Word of God by Chuck Tuthill. And he gave us a practical, simple conclusion to what it meant to be living in godly wisdom. And I can't repeat what he said other than to say, basically he said, just check your humility barometer, guys. If you're not walking in humility, you're not walking in wisdom. Can we see that here? Can we see that? We need to understand, I don't really know what God's doing in my brother or sister's life, but I want to encourage them that they'll continue to seek Jesus. And can we understand our pride gets out of hand? And can we cry out, Son of David, have mercy on me, and 
Can we keep our humility barometer in the right place? Just some thoughts. Father, thank you. Thank you for the magnificent joy of sharing your word with your people. Thank you, Father, for the privilege it has been these many years. And, uh, Lord, I love them, and I thank you for them, and I thank you for what you're doing in them, for what we have seen you do in us. We celebrate that, Father, that you are bringing us healing completely, and you're bringing us healing uniquely, but it's your work, Father, and that we celebrate, and that we yield ourselves to you for that continued work in our lives. We thank you for it in Jesus' name.